Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope for those of you uh, coming across our broadcast for the very first time. It's our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. I'm joined here by my right-hand man, protege, our good guy, Sean Richards, and we are here to tackle any question you have about the Bible, whether it's a question about biblical prophecy. Boy, we've got some interesting things uh, bubbling under the surface here. We want to share them with you in just a moment uh, as as is our want prophecy updates, part of what we do here. But most importantly, we want to answer the questions that are on your heart and your mind relating to God's Word. Uh, maybe it's a question about a particular passage in the Bible you'd like to explore, get some clarity on uh, those verses that have raised more questions for you than giving you the answer. Bring it on. We'd love to do that. Maybe a tough question or two has been raised uh, about your relationship uh, with God or what the Bible has to say about having a living relationship with Him. Some uh, interesting questions dealt with uh, earlier today about the uh, subject of uh, grace and the implications of that for eternity. We might uh, get a chance to touch base on as the broadcast unfolds. Uh, if there's personal issues going on in your walk with God, you could use some guidance and direction from the Word. We're all over that as well. And of course, the events of the day, the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. You know, wherever you'd like to go, we'd love to go there with you. It's your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of a reason for hope. So uh, jump on in on any of uh, our lifelines. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to clarify spelling, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. The Calvary is spelled C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. Cavalry is in reference to yeah. horseback. <laughs> yeah. So uh, note the difference, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. And if you join us there, you'll be able to click on a little purple bar at the top that says watch live. Click on that and you will have on the right side of the screen an empty white box where you can type in your questions as the broadcast unfolds. And also note, if it's not 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. when we are live streaming, you can still join us through engaging through those venues. We'll be airing the previous day's broadcast automatically, and we'll have it spelled out for you. That is the email address in a banner below our smiling faces. Note as well, if you'd like to join us on social media, YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe there, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. But if for whatever reason, uh, usually technical mishaps, but under the eventuality that we get taken down as well, if we're not streaming there and we don't give you prior notifications, join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform. Uh, we have some many things to get to before the broadcast runs out of time, and we want to make sure there's room for your questions as well. Why don't we start with a word of prayer, and we'll see how much we can get to before the time goes out. Okay, we'll do that. Father, I thank you that we live in such interesting times, times where we're seeing what your word has to say about those heavenly heads up, about uh, the proximity of your uh, son's return uh, coming to pass around us uh, every day. Lord, it is just amazing. We see what's going on in Israel, the different things that are happening there. 
and Lord, uh, it encourages us. Lord, you tell us when you see these things begin to happen, look up for your salvation draws near. We pray, Father, that that would be the essence of this program, an encouragement to look up, uh, to have hope, even in these uh, incredibly confusing and sometimes confounding times that we live in. Thank you, Lord, that your word can be that lamp into our feet and light into our path, whether it's personal decisions we need to make in our walk with you, whether it's uh, having a perspective on uh, world events that allows us to uh, grow in faith and not give way to fear, even in these crazy times. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. We pray that it would speak, uh, Lord, that you would speak mightily through your Holy Spirit to your people and that uh, the people who join us here would be edified, exhorted, and comforted, as your word says, uh, that it produces in your people as it goes forth. Thank you for this uh, beautiful time that we have here. May you and you alone be glorified as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what's going on in the realm of prophecy? Well, you know, we could ask ourselves uh, the question, what's not going on? In uh, the realm of prophecy, Uh, one of the things we like to do here on the broadcast, if you're new to this, is to keep you up to date about significant events uh, that are in harmony with what Jesus told us to look for as signs of the times, uh, signs that his return is drawing near. And uh, one of the things we uh, continually like to remind you of, in order to stay uh, on top of these things and not get carried away by sensationalism or people giving into hype, not everything that happens in this world that's bad or distressing is prophetically significant. But we like to keep you focused on what's happening in Israel. If uh, you understand what God's prophetic plan is for writing this world gone wrong, most of it revolves around what he's going to be doing in the Jewish state. And so uh, we wanted to let you know of a number of different things happening in Israel right now. Sean, as you know, uh, Ramadan, uh, the Jewish month of fasting, uh, at least fasting during the daytime. Uh, and uh, Feasting more than any other time of the year. And Passover and uh, Easter have all kind of uh, coincided, and it's really created some uh, serious tensions going on in Israel. Uh, the Temple Mount area was closed to Jewish visitors because of a number of riots that were taking place, uh, M80 fireworks and so forth being tossed off the Temple Mount on uh, those who were praying uh, at uh, the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall uh, by some. Uh, it was just really created uh, quite a bit of uh, instability there. Uh, a, a Jewish politician who is uh, part of uh, the more rightward-leaning uh, coalition in the Knesset uh, wanted to go into uh, eastern uh, Jerusalem and uh, have a parade featuring Israeli flags. This was uh, halted by uh, President Naftali Bennett. I uh, felt it was too provocative, but uh, you don't need much provocation for things to light up in that neck of the world. Right before airtime, a story broke on the Jerusalem Post telling us that uh, the uh, Hamas terrorists in Gaza have now uh, launched a barrage of rockets on southern Israel, largely uh, targeting the uh, southern Israeli city of Sederot. Uh, Israel has responded uh, in return uh, in a very interesting way, apparently uh, based upon uh, a lot of uh, of background and information they had, they were able to target uh, one of the uh, Palestinian terror tunnels, uh, these concrete reinforced tunnels that reach into Israeli territory and provide access uh, for uh, Palestinian terrorists to come into some of these uh, Israeli communities, kibbutzes and so forth. 
that are right there on the border and uh, do damage. Well, they found the entrance to one, and uh, they were not only able to target this, but uh, Israeli special forces were able to go in and uh, blow up a major uh, missile chemical plant that had been built underneath uh, the, uh, the, the ground there and had been uh, strongly uh, concrete reinforced. Uh, well, because they were in there, they were able to plant explosives, and lo and behold, you plant explosives alongside uh, various missiles and so forth, and missile-making uh, uh, chemicals and so on, missile-fueling chemicals and so on, uh, you've got a, a major explosion that has gone on there. So that has uh, gone on uh, in Israel. As far as Israel and uh, the nations of the world, uh, we're told in passages like Zechariah chapter 12 that at one point Israel will be surrounded uh, literally by all nations gathered against it. Uh, and uh, we do see some signs of this um, pieces of the uh, puzzle coming together uh, a bit in that uh, Israel has been placed, I think, in, in the, uh, well, uh, unenviable un, position, I should say, of uh, being in a place where Naftali Bennett is uh, becoming a go-between between, between uh, uh, Vladimir Zarinsky and uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, certainly, uh, he doesn't uh, want to be in this place, uh, and it has uh, caused him to catch uh, quite a bit of uh, grief uh, from both sides. However, uh, right before airtime, apparently, uh, Naftali Bennett is going to, at the behest of uh, Ukraine's uh, Zelensky, uh, attempt to uh, mediate another uh, attempt at achieving a peace in that region between uh, he and Vladimir Putin. Now, the reason I say this is an indication of all nations of the world gathering against Israel, you would think that if a um, major political individual in that neck of the woods was serving as a mediator trying to get two sides of this warring faction in a uh, conflict, uh, that uh, some have said could end up uh, with the use of tactical nuclear weapons and so forth, uh, that that would be welcomed. Uh, but uh, it seems like Israel is catching it on both sides. Uh, those who support uh, the Ukrainian side of things are saying that Israel is far too chummy with uh, Vladimir Putin. In fact, uh, Vladimir Putin appears to be stirring the pot a bit in that he, he has now uh, put forward a demand that Russia gained control of a church in Jerusalem, as was promised by uh, uh, the uh, previous administration uh, that Benjamin Netanyahu uh, oversaw. Uh, in exchange for Russia extending leniency to an Israeli national who had been uh, caught and put in prison on drug charges, uh, a long festering dispute over an ortho a Russian Orthodox property uh, in uh, East Jerusalem uh, was to be handed over to the control of the Russians. Well, that hadn't happened at this point, but uh, Vladimir Putin is now uh, sending a letter to the foreign ministry, uh, basically uh, slamming Foreign Minister Yair Lapid for accusing Russia of war crimes in Ukraine, saying Israel is using Ukraine to cover up its own conflict with the Palestinians. Uh, the Russian foreign ministry also summoned uh, Israeli Ambassador uh, Alexander Ben-Zivi for a reprimand on Sunday, and then up the ante by saying, now we want you to pass along the deed to this church to essentially give a piece of uh, East Jerusalem over to Russian diplomatic control. So uh, this promise was made uh, back in uh, 2020. 
Uh, and uh, now, again, Vladimir Putin being the uh, chess master that he is, is uh, saying, okay, Israel, if you're going to uh, do things like make us look bad in the United Nations, accuse us of war crimes and so on, so we can put you in a place where you're going to look bad by seemingly being on our side of things. So uh, that is going on. Uh, but most uh, interestingly, uh, one of the uh, interesting uh, prophecies that we find in the book of Revelation, especially uh, Revelation chapter 11, which we're going to be concluding tonight in our uh, midweek study here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We've been going through a series on the book of Revelation called uh, There is a New World Coming. And uh, boy, uh, some fascinating stuff we're going to get into tonight. But one of the most fascinating parts of Revelation chapter 11 is a description of a temple that is going to be rebuilt in Israel during the last days. Now, Sean, why is it crucial prophetically for that temple to be rebuilt? Well, two reasons. One, when it comes to the last days, specifically the Great Tribulation, two very specific events are going to happen. First, the famous abomination that causes desolation, which will be the defiling of the Jewish temple and the ceasing of all sacrifices enforced as he declares himself to be God. Kind so you've got to have a temple in order for that to happen. You can't defile something that's not there, and you can't restrict activities in a place that isn't there. doesn't exist, yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. So, you know, again, in Revelation chapter 11, we're told that this is going to happen. Uh, very interesting, uh, because when you take a trip to Israel, part of our tours, we've uh, gone by a site called the Temple Mount Society, where uh, they are about the business of uh, training uh, young Jewish men to serve as priests and Levites and fabricating the, uh, the various accoutrements necessary to reinstitute temple worship. They believe that uh, they are they could very well be the generation that sees the temple rebuilt. Well, you talk I to so. you talk to tour guides and uh, people in the, the the know around there. Our good friend Ronnie Simone and others, and they kind of shake their heads a little bit about it, saying, you know, as far as the average Jewish person is concerned, uh, people like the Temple Mount Society seem kind of like uh, the fringe kind of outliers, if you will, as far as uh, you know the the average Jewish person there. But uh, maybe not so much. Uh, the tide seems to be turning a bit. Uh, for instance, in today's Jerusalem Post uh, article with a provocative headline, uh, Israel will not change the status quo in Jerusalem, according to Yehil uh, Lapid. Fake reports are spreading in the Arab world that the Israeli government is trying to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is that classic gold dome building that you see in all the pictures uh, of Israel, and prevent Muslims from praying there. Uh, again, Yair Lapid said that Israel will maintain what is called status quo on the Temple Mount. Now, status quo, a little background, a little history for you. When Israel took East Jerusalem in 1967, one of the most unexpected things that happened was an Israeli half-track uh, penetrated uh, Jordanian lines, uh, made its way up the Via Dolorosa in East Jerusalem, that is the uh, street uh, where Jesus carried his cross, hung a hard left and found itself in the middle of the Temple Mount. Uh, at that point, the half-track uh, commander radioed and said, we have taken the Temple Mount. Now, most Arabs at that time believed that Israel would seize that opportunity to bulldoze the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and to uh, begin to reestablish their temple. Well, Moshe Dayan, who was the head of the Israeli Defense Forces, without government approval, 
unilaterally said to the Jordanians, no, we're not going to do that. In fact, we're going to allow you to continue to oversee this area to make sure that Muslims always have the uh, ability to pray and that these uh, shrines will not be disturbed. That is what is called the status quo. And virtually every Israel government, in fact, all of them unanimously, have maintained that down through time. Well, this uh, so-called fake news that is spreading in the Arab world, uh, you know, is uh, is kind of catching on like uh, wildfire. Uh, again, uh, Naftali Bennett, the prime minister, said uh, that neighboring states need to show leadership and uh, come against these lies. He said there's a huge amount of fake news, citing rumors spread by Palestinians that Israel is trying to split the Temple Mount between the Jews and the Muslims using the model of the Tomb of the Patriarchs. Well, that Tomb of the Patriarchs is a uh, shrine that uh, does have that kind of split access, separate but equal, if you will, as far as uh, as uh, being able to have uh, uh, access to something that to both sides we consider a holy site. Well, uh, again, that news is spreading, but uh, very interesting. Uh, another article today in the Jerusalem Post uh, is a uh, op-ed by a Rabbi Tuli Weitz, who, with this uh, compelling uh, headline, when blood spills on Passover and Easter, it's time to build the temple. <laughs> well, uh, again, uh, Rabbi Weitz uh, writes this. One would have hoped yesterday's unique convergence of Passover, Easter, and Ramadan would have led to a wonderful day of peace and brotherhood in the spiritual capital city of Jerusalem. Alas, any day of religious harmony on any day holy to all three great Abrahamic faiths was shattered by Muslim rioters who turned the Temple Mount into a bloody battlefield by hurling stones at Jewish worshipers in Israeli vehicles. Palestinian terrorists have been fanning the flames of religious violence in recent weeks as Israelis have been preparing for the Passover holiday. On Thursday, April 8th, the Palestinian terrorist attacked Tel Aviv's busy uh, Dzingoff Square, where the mainly secular Israeli young people were at crowded bars and cafes, murdering three Jews in their 20s. Shortly after the deadly massacre, Hamas explained their motive and declared this. Now listen to this. The continuing terrorism of the occupation and its crimes attempts to Judaize Jerusalem and to perform sacrifices in the Al-Aqsa Mosque to build its so-called temple during what they call Passover against its stands, blood, and bullets. So again, uh, Rabbi Weitz says, through their statement, Hamas exposed their greatest fear that Israel will start to build the temple. Well, as you know, for thousands of years, uh, Jews have been praying for a return to the land of Israel at the uh, end of every Passover. They pray that they might be found worthy by God to rebuild uh, their temple, uh, that there is only one place where sacrifice and offering can be made, and that is on the Temple Mount. Rabbi Weitz makes this statement, and I think it's a radical one. Ju Judaism is incomplete without the temple, and Passover is a prime example, as Deuteronomy makes clear. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 16 uh, that says, you're not permitted to slaughter the Passover sacrifice in any of the settlements that Hashem, your God, is giving you. But at the place where Hashem, your God, will choose to establish your name, there alone you shall slaughter the Pesach sacrifice. 
in the evening at sundown at the time when you departed from Egypt. For those who haven't been listening for a while, why does the rabbi say Hashem as opposed to the Lord? Well, the words Hashem in Hebrew literally mean the name. Uh, Jewish, uh, observant Jews are so concerned about uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, the third commandment, violating that, and instead of uh, trying to pronounce the name of God, the four-consonant uh, name of God, his covenantal name, yod heth vau heth uh, the Jews who put together what we call the Masoretic text, which included vowel pointing. Uh, Israel's a, uh, or Hebrew is a consonantal language. It doesn't have vowels in it. You just learn it. You learn what the words are. But uh, because uh, Hebrew was dying out as a spoken language, uh, these uh, Masoretes, as they were known, it literally means masters of tradition, uh, introduced what was called vowel pointing uh, into the Hebrew text, with one exception. Uh, the covenant name of God was considered so holy, and if there was any kind of uncertainty that it would be mispronounced, they felt it better not to put any kind of vowels in and just have those four letters whenever what we would refer to as Yahweh or Jehovah. Jehovah, by the way, is a German uh, transliteration of that using the consonants from uh, Yahweh and the vowels from Adonai. If a Jehovah's Witness says that's the only name that God can be called, they just don't know their German translations of the Bible. None of the apostles, Jesus, no one ever used the word Jehovah. It's an approximation, if you will. They don't know a lot of things. But, but just clarifying for those listening, it's a sign of respect. And if you're speaking to someone who's Jewish, Orthodox, Messianic, or otherwise, make sure that you note that so that you don't cut off the relationship. It is well-intended, and it is, of course, something I think that a lot of people could learn from, having that reverence and respect for God. Yeah, and, and that, that's why. Uh, so you, you hear that term, Hashem. But going back that's to his statement. what it's going through. So... Uh, again, Rabbi Weitz writes, Hamas is terrified that after close to 75 years of statehood, Israel will begin turning its attention to the place where God chose to establish his name. In fact, each year, more and more Israelis take the dangerous risk of ascending the Holy Mountain under the hostile guards of Jordanian officials. And you and I, having been there on the Temple Mount, we know how hostile those, uh, they're known as Waqfa, the uh, Jordanian administration over the Temple Mount, can be. They're not really pleased that anyone who's non-Muslim, Jew or Gentile, if you will, non, non-Muslim, uh, be up there. And if uh, they sense that you're praying, they'll come after you with a stick. Uh, if you are a woman and they uh, deem your skirt too short and not showing proper respect, they will come out with a big beach towel that you have to wear while you're out there. Along with uh, a few other slurs and if, physical contact. If uh, a couple uh, on our tour was holding hands. They came up and hit them with a stick and say, no holding hands. And if a tour guide, heaven forbid, says the word Temple Mount during their presentation, what do they do? They say it's not the Temple Mount. It is Al-Aqsa. Yeah. It's the center. And that is when I step in and start asking them difficult questions, and then they go away. Well, <laughs> or... Or somebody often, <laughs> someone gets arrested. Anyway, uh, the, the bottom line is this. Each year, more and more Israelis try to be up there, but uh, the hostility there is pretty thick. Uh, Rabbi Weitz writes, Palestinian terrorists are getting scared as Jews are getting serious about restoring our Holy of Holies, the site we pray toward every day and the building we beseech God repeatedly for throughout, throughout our liturgy. 
On a national level, the rebuilding of the temple will be a great humiliation to Palestinian terror groups. But on a religious level, the construction, now listen to this, of Judaism's third temple would in no way pose a threat to Islam, whose main holy sites are in Mecca and Medina. Responsible Jewish, Christians, and Muslim leaders should use this recent wave of Islamic violence to immediately begin discussing practical and peaceful steps for the rebuilding of the temple and its temple mount. It could be done without damaging or disrespecting the Dome of the Rock or Al-Aqsa as part of a future peace plan between Israel and her Arab neighbors to end the plague of Islamic terror once and for all. Uh, again, Christianity and Islam, uh, Rabbi Weitz uh, pointed out that there is a respect for the place of the temple in both of those traditions. And uh, again, he says, with more Christians coming alongside the Jews and becoming passionate about the need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, we have a unique opportunity today. Rather than lamenting the terrible violence that disrupted Passover, Easter, and Ramadan, we must take steps to prevent religious violence from causing further blood to be spilled in the streets of Jerusalem. It's time for peace-loving Jews, Christians, and Muslims to come together and build, quote, the house of prayer for all nations. Now, that's fascinating stuff uh, indeed. Uh, the, uh, the interesting thing that is being put forward here is this is not a, an individual that, you know, is printing out a newsletter in his basement or just uh, opining on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, this is an individual whose editorial uh, gained uh, a very prominent place in a mainstream newspaper like the Jerusalem Post. And uh, the, the fascinating thing about that to me, Sean, is that uh, the reason for rebuilding the temple is not in order to create division in the land, but to be a rallying point for peace within the region. Now, that starts to sound really, really familiar when we understand Daniel chapter 9, when the Antichrist is going to come in and make a strong covenant with many nations that is going to bring a temporary peace to the world, but is also going to include the right of the Jews to rebuild on the Temple Mount. The other fascinating thing the rabbi points out is that the uh, temple could be built without damaging either the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome of the Rock. So fascinating developments indeed uh, coming from very unexpected sources. Yeah, as we mentioned, you go to Israel on a tour, you see the Temple Mount Society, eh, kind of fringy sort of a thing for uh, Christian tourists to go through. Uh, but not uh, so much the mainstream. Well, you're not going to get much more mainstream than uh, front page op-ed in the Jerusalem Post. So things may very well be changing there. So lots going on prophetically. And as always, people say, well, so what? What difference does this make? Well, here's the so what. We are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem first and foremost. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, God promised to bless those who blessed Abraham and his descendants and curse those who cursed them. We want to make sure that we are on the side of that blessing. In fact, we've discussed this before. People ask, why hasn't God judged the United States? It seems like we are ripe for all of this. And boy, when you read about all that's going on in the news today and crazy stuff that's happening here in the United States, you start to wonder. I really believe one of the things that has staved off massive judgment against us is the fact that we've stood with Israel since its inception. And God honors that covenant and promise in Genesis chapter 12 
at verse 3. The other thing that we are told to do is we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are to pray that the Lord will bring stability and calm there and that God would bring peace to his people uh, in Jerusalem especially. And also, when we see these kind of things beginning to happen, uh, we are to look up. Uh, There's no prophecy of Scripture that has to be fulfilled prior to the time that Jesus could snatch us out before that final seven-year period called the Tribulation at the event called the Rapture. Uh, You know, we, more than anyone who has lived in the last 2,000 years, have uh, this kind of tap on the shoulder saying, you know, the, the pieces are coming together. The world's seen, predicted in the last days of the end times. Israel, back in the land in and of itself, is one of the most radical and over-the-top prophetic fulfillments I think we could ever have. So, uh, again, so important to stay on top of these things, so important to uh, take a look at our lives. You know, as our good friend Joel Rosenberg often says, if you're planning a major sin within your life, in light of all these things going on, I would definitely put it off. Yep. Um, real quick, before we get into the Bible questions, John wanted a clarification. Is Al-Aqsa, the mosque that is built next to the Dome of the Rock, uh, Sunni or Shiite? Uh, neither, John. It was founded during the reigns of the four rightly guided caliphs, Muhammad's four main successors. Um, it was generally assumed to be traditionally attributed to Umar, the nefarious left-handed man in his conquest of Jerusalem, but was, interestingly enough, uh, destroyed and rebuilt 20 times because of of earthquakes. I find that hilarious. The point, though, being made is that uh, the various sects between Sunni and Shiite, it's largely political dissension of leadership. Um, the Shia believe that Ali, Muhammad's adopted son-in-law, was, of course, the rightful successor from the start. The Shia, or the Sunni, rather, uh, believe that it was handed off to the one they believe was most qualified and appointed by Aisha. That's why the Shiite uh, literally throw a temper tantrum whenever you mention her name. So the point being made is that it's uh, not a structure dedicated to any particular sect. It is something associated as a victory monument that uh, marks the conquest of Islam over this area. If you want to find the name Al-Aqsa in the Quran, you won't. Uh, It's actually a reference to, they believe, the furthermost mosque which Muhammad traveled to in his night visions. The problem is there's no reason for us to believe that's actually Jerusalem from the text or commentaries until literally centuries later. So take that what you will. Uh, If they were to lose Al-Aqsa, it would be the same punch in the gut, so to speak, as them losing Spain, losing India, or attempting to, and uh, unfortunately recently retaking uh, Turkey, the desecration of the Hagia Sophia, uh, I guess, explained that perfectly. Yeah, so there you go. uh, Noting that as a mark of conquest. Now we'll go to our Bible questions. Uh, Here's two that we... Uh, have answered very recently, but no better opportunity for clarity than repetition. Uh, Kevin wants to know uh, regarding the three days and three nights being an error in the Bible. If we say that we celebrate on Good Friday, uh, how do you fit three days and three nights when you only technically have one full day? You have Sunday morning, and then you have Friday afternoon. How does that jibe? Yeah, probably the uh, easiest response to that, Kevin, and if you want to elaborate on some of the less easy responses to it, uh, uh, feel free if you feel so led, Sean. But the easiest way to explain it is this. Uh, The Jews would reckon days uh, differently than we would. We tend to think of three days and three nights as a 72-hour period of time. You would have to have that full 72 hours in order to have three days and three nights. Not so in Judaism. Uh, If you have any portion of a day, even a couple of hours, 
that's considered a full day by their reckoning. And so if Jesus is crucified at, uh, again, nine in the morning uh, on uh, Good Friday, he dies after six hours on the cross, that's three in the afternoon, uh, that is considered one whole day, the three in the afternoon till roughly about six o'clock at night. Then another whole day begins from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So that is considered another full day. Then another day begins from Saturday sundown until the time that Jesus rose from the dead, uh, which would be sometime early on Sunday morning. So using uh, that reckoning of how the Jews would take a look at three days and three nights and understand it, and there's a passage in the book of Esther that confirms that in Esther chapter 4, that you don't have to have the full 72 hours that uh, Jesus was using an idiom that the people in his day would fully understand. That's probably the easiest way to explain it. But as we say, there's other theories. Yeah. So just make sure that uh, if you're ever confronted by these things, it's responded to with more questions than, than I guess, uh, balking at accusations. If you want to know these things, again, we'd be happy to address them in more detail. But make sure that when we're talking about this, it's not a matter of, well, if they didn't get the day right, then that means the day never occurred. Well, let's go with the alternatives. What's another theory? Some believe it was good Thursday. Some believe it was good Wednesday. But the emphasis on it being good was, as you said, in your message, finding the good in Good Friday was the celebration of Passover, and that's largely where this debate can find its flexibility, because Passover was not a day, it wasn't the Friday exclusively, it was the whole week. The the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place over several periods of days, and also the extra Sabbath they would have would mark that, not just Saturday, but, say it with me, Friday, Friday. (laughs) and continuing on with the point. So make sure that when we're talking about this, uh, the preparation day for the feast and so forth, these things are marked in the evidence internally. But if you say have a good Wednesday service, the only thing that has to change are church schedulings. It's nothing that the Bible actually says. You know, and if you want to explore some of the other theories, like was Jesus, there were two Sabbaths that week, the Sabbath leading the Passover and then another regular Sabbath, and that that would explain uh, some of the details that we find here. Uh, there's a fascinating analysis on an alternate theory than the one that we've shared with you uh, that is worth your consideration, uh, done by our uh, good friend, the uh, late, great Chuck Missler. He's an amazing uh, Bible teacher. He's part of uh, an Annapolis grad, part of the, the team that founded uh, the uh, U.S. Missile Command. He was also on the board of directors of the TRW Corporation, and just an amazing a Bible student. You sit on a Chuck Missler message, and man, oh man, it, you, you get a lot of data and uh, some very interesting insight. He uh, still has, he's gone home to his reward, but he still has a uh, ministry uh, called uh, Koinonia House. And if you would like to go and explore uh, what he holds to be a Wednesday uh, crucifixion going on, a good Wednesday, if you will. Uh, you can go there. It's found at khouse.org. That's the letter K-H-O-U-S-E, khouse.org. Just go there and do a search on the website. And uh, boy, you can go as in-depth on that particular subject as you want to get. But he does a, he does a, uh, a wonderful job on that, pretty compelling arguments. So I still lean towards the Good Friday and the Jewish idiom explanation, but... I think there's some uh, really interesting things to consider there as well. 
Yeah, but don't get caught up in semantics like that. If people say, oh, well, uh, you know, the Bible says that three kings came and visited Jesus. No, it mentions three gifts were brought to him and right. that some of the individuals weren't kings. They were Parthian magi. Yeah. But if we're going to, uh, I guess, mince details and say, well, if you were to tell a Christian that, they wouldn't believe you. Well, I don't care what a Christian does or doesn't believe. If it's in disagreement with the Bible, it's not Christianity. Yeah. To specify that difference, I think you'll be okay. But thank you for the question again. Uh, another question we answered very recently, but repetition brings clarity. Monica wants to know. Uh, this was answered yesterday in the context of did Adam and Eve have glorified bodies similar to Jesus? And we answered it the same same way we will now. Uh, she wants to know regarding the transformation of our spiritual body into a glorious body. Will these glorified bodies be like what Jesus had at the resurrection? Monica, I think the best place to go would be Philippians 3.21, where Paul the Apostle, speaking to the Philippian church, specifies that the Christian life's ultimate end goal is, and I quote, for us to be conformed to his glorious body. He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Now, what's his glorious body like? Well, as you stated, the one he demonstrated at his resurrection. We saw in John chapter 20 and 21 that he was still able to eat, still able to interact physically, and still able to speak. So he has lungs, he has a mouth, he has eyes, he has a human shape. But at the same time, he could do things that human bodies can't. He could enter right. a room without using the door. He could Very travel impressive. to past locations <laughs> yeah. without the use of, uh, I guess, camelgram or any other equivalent. Uh, some would shorthand this as teleportation, but if you want to avoid the science fiction stigma, just say he could travel very quickly. And, of course, other things as well. He wouldn't decay. He could be taken up bodily into heaven in the sight of the apostles, but some think that that's more of a divine trait. Not really that big a deal. But uh, just note those things to keep in mind. Revel or Revelation. Same author. John chapter 20 and 21 and Philippians 3.21 are key. There's also passages in Colossians that affirm this point as well. Yeah, um, you know, there's thoughts about whether uh, Adam and Eve at the beginning were clothed with light. Uh, people bring that up, and uh, they will use a passage like uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, where it says uh, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Well, the term naked there is the very same word that is translated. Now, the serpent was more cunning, or literally more naked than uh, any beast of the field. Uh, the, the word carries the idea of a shining one. You know, it can That's also, what serpent means. It, it can also mean uh, the, the idea of simply being unclothed. It is not something that is absolutely precise in a Hebrew lexicon. As always, the context tends to give it away. Some people take that, that uh, because the word naked can mean shining, uh, it does mean that they were both shining, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Uh, seems a bit of a stretch, uh, because why would you have any kind of shame associated at all if you're already clothed, clothed with light? Uh, again, uh, the scripture says that God clothes himself with light as a cloak, uh, and they would point to that particular passage. Uh, the bottom line is, we don't know, I think the main point of saying that uh, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed, was this. They had a perfect relationship with, with one another. They were perfectly intimate on every level, uh, and there was no uh, intervening uh, sin to uh, mess up the uh, situation. So people bring that up. I think it's somewhat speculative. Usually, you know, when we see the word naked there, it can mean just 
unclothed, not needing any kind of clothes. If you're in a perfect environment where the temperature is, I don't know, 74 degrees every day and uh, we don't uh, have any signs of the fall going on or anything like that, uh, I'm not sure you really need a whole lot of clothing. And uh, if you have no sin nature, nothing to be ashamed of, uh, no negative connotations surrounding nakedness as we have in our culture, no problem with that either. So Which you saw introduced in Genesis 3. Now, yeah. to further service the point and the segue that we've taken, let us know again if the previous answer helps you, Monica. But what you mean to say is that two words could mean different things, even though the same word is used depending on the context. Would you be so mean as to mislead people like that? No. Anyone notice what I did there? Yeah. You can use the I same saw what English he did there, word there, mean and mean as in an emotional sense or as an understanding sense. Well, naked can mean certain things depending on the context, so note the difference there. Yeah, and so can love. You know, I use the same word love to describe uh, how I feel about my wife and how I feel about uh, the Wildcats winning a, a ball game. Obviously, two different experiences and emotions, but uh, the context is key. So, All right. Yeah. Um, Question on our website. Uh, I wish Peter Martin was here because he and I have fun with this. Uh, he wants to know about the idea of waste, uh, not just the body processing these things, but, say, disposing of things. Uh, will that no longer take place in heaven, or will uh, you know things not uh, decay in the same way? So we'll have to figure out a new, I guess, retrieval system. Will, does, will we basically send all of our trash to hell since it's described as a garbage dump, et cetera, et cetera? So uh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, it's basically centering around the understanding that will the new heavens and the new earth function as far as conservationism, if you will, the stewardship of the environment, the proper allocation of resources, the separation from waste as opposed to useful products. Uh, why do we sort through these things? Well, in this fallen sinful world, the reason why we don't reuse cups is because of one key detail joints. We yeah. don't want to share whatever the person who was previously drinking from that had. We don't want to deal with backwash. We are prone to infections. And so to maintain hygiene, we preserve life and therefore the prevention of disease outbreaks through cleanliness. That is the disposal of things we're not using that could hold these sort of I guess, uh, stragglers on yeah. bacteria yeah. that isn't necessarily harming us, but could harm someone else. And the disposal of it, why? Because exposed to people who aren't immunized from those particular uh, creatures and uh, wiggle worms and so forth could get sick by them. At the end of the day, saliva saliva, but it doesn't harm you. It could harm someone else if you're not immunized. So the point being made is this. Uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, I think that the concept of waste will definitely have to be reassessed because we won't be in a state where those pathogens are a threat to us anymore. We also need to understand what we do know and what we don't know about the new heavens and the new earth need to be understood in that light. We aren't told. So we should stick to the text that we are told. We're not told about the disposal system. There's not like a, a, a hell shoot every uh, 40 blocks or so where if you need to throw something away, you can just, you know, send it down to the hot shoot and the yeah. you know, angels will take it down to dump it on the heads of the people. When we're talking about hell as a garbage dump, we're not saying it's a literal garbage dump, nor was Jesus. When he compared it to the Valley Gehenna. of Hinnom, yeah. yeah, Gehenna, 
it was a garbage dump, but it was used in the context not to describe the smells of hell, but the state of hell, a place of perpetual burning, a place you did not want to go, a place Decay. of great evil, yeah. a place that just was bad. And, and that's the biggie, is that the Valley of Hinnom was associated with the uh, worship of the horrible idol Moloch uh, that was uh, worshipped with infant sacrifice. Uh, they build these uh, kind of potbelly stove images of Moloch with uh, arms outstretched, and you would take uh, your firstborn child as an offering to Moloch uh, for the promise of greater fertility later on. And uh, they would literally toss these babies onto these uh, white-hot wooden arms, and they would fall into uh, these pot-bellied stove idols. And so the screaming of these infants could be heard echoing uh, outside of Jerusalem while it was happening. And the guy who started it, believe it or not, was King Solomon. Trying to appease his foreign wives, so uh, the Valley of Hinnom had that that overhang to it as a place of incredible uh, evil on display, evil in its purest form. And I think that's one of the main reasons why Jesus used that uh, analogy. Yeah. Um, and by the way, for those watching the live stream, you're wondering why I smiled a little bit at that. It wasn't because of the pot-bellied infanticide. Um, I read a comment asking about angels having a farting contest, and I'm, I'm a child, so I, I couldn't help but giggle a little. Um, the question, though, is that <laughs> point. When we're talking about understanding what we do know or what we don't know, we want to stick to the text. When it comes to this particular matter of waste disposal, I reconcile it what I know about waste and compare it to the previous creation, and I don't think that waste was particularly a problem until separation from God took place, and they therefore didn't know what the good way to handle those things were. I think they'll still be there. There are those who disagree with me, thus the fun conversations. But the point being made is this. We're not told, so let's stick to that. Yeah, and, and you know, again, we have to uh, make sure that we're getting our takes on what the eternal state is going to be like, uh, not from, say, uh, popular culture or, or things that just get passed along, uh, I think we need to be as precise about it as possible. Like when people say that uh, eternity is going to be a timeless state, uh, I don't think that's accurate no. in that uh, we are told that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be a tree of life that produces a different kind of fruit each month out of the year. Each indeterminate cycle of uh, continual existence? No. Every month. Every That's month. A determined so, period of time. You know, and I mean, let's face it, if there was no time, everything would just mash into its, itself. So uh, it's not going to be time as we understand it. In our fallenness, we tend to measure time on the basis of decay, on things falling apart. Uh, that's usually how we reckon that because that's what dominates uh, a, uh, a, our existence. People say from the moment you're conceived, you're heading towards your death date, if you will, which is uh, very realistic but not a very pleasant way to look at things. But that's what dominates uh, in this fallen world and universe that we live in. In the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be under completely different uh, rules. And we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that, just like a fish that lived its entire life at uh, 3,000 feet under the sea would have an awfully hard time understanding what a sunset is. So uh, we're going to understand it better when we get there. Uh, All we know is it's going to be amazing. And there are certain aspects of the creation we live in now that will carry over in a sense. We'll be able to understand things based on what we experience now, but it's going to be perfected. 
All right, uh, question from Nina. By the way, the answer to this is gonna be a bit morbid, so if you're of uh, more sensitive constitutions, uh, maybe come back here in about five minutes. Uh, what's the best way to witness to someone who believes the teachings of William Branham and Jim Jones? Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Nina, for the question. Um, Jim Jones wasn't a Christian, he was a socialist. The socialist ideology founded by Karl Marx, who by the way was an atheist, said that religion of any sort is the opiate of the masses. If your ideology, and this is what you can talk to them about, fundamentally denies the nature of God as a mere stimulant for people in the world, uh, that needs to be understood as such. He doesn't have a Christian worldview, thus you wouldn't be a Christian. If you claim to follow his teachings and be a Christian, that's incoherent. And it's also worth noting and drawing attention to, here's the unpleasant part, if you listen to the uh, final recording of Jonestown where children were literally being given cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, the term drinking the Kool-Aid came from, yeah. and you hear their screams, his words of comfort were not that we as Christians need to be courageous in the face of this persecution, which he claimed they were undergoing when, in fact, they had just killed the United States representative. They, of course, did not say we are Christians. He says we are socialists and should die with dignity. Again, I don't recommend you listen to it. It is horrifying. But the point being made is this. By his own words and teachings, he was not a Christian. He affirmed a political ideology that denies Christianity as nothing more than an opiate. The teachings of William Branham follow the same way, but not in regards to political ideology. He did claim to be a Christian, but he was a verifiable false prophet. Yeah, he claimed to be a prophet. In fact, on his tombstone uh, is written, Behold, I will send you the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Uh, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he began to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. Uh William Branham believed that he was the final prophet of God, that there were seven prophets that God would give to the church, but he believed that he was the final prophet of God. Uh, and uh, he died in 1965. When he died, his uh, followers had a vigil over his uh, grave, believing that he would rise from the dead. He did not do that. And by the um, way, none of the prophets that he claimed uh, himself to be among the number themselves ever claimed to be prophets. Exactly. So... Um, you know, if you go on a site like gotquestions.com, uh, uh, .org, uh, you know, you're going to see that it's hard uh, to categorize exactly what this guy said because one day he'd say one thing and the other day he'd say the other. But uh, as far as uh, some of his controversial claims, he said uh, that uh, God exists only as one person but reveals himself in different modes uh, that's called modalism. Which in other words, heresy. God uh, sometimes puts on his father hat, sometimes he puts on the son hat, sometimes he puts on the spirit hat, And but it's, it's, there's no doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, that runs into real problems when Jesus was baptized because we see all three members of the triunity of God getting involved with it, not Jesus running up to heaven and saying, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And Isaiah uh, 64, 18, where all three members of the Trinity are addressed as functioning independently from one another, yet all existing as the one and only God. Yeah, they're really big on the serpent seed doctrine, yeah. uh, that the fall uh, was uh, having sex with the snake. Um, they are into word faith uh, movement. They believe that the Egyptian pyramids and the zodiac uh, are equal in inspiration with uh, the Word of God. And uh, again, um, the claims that he made about miraculous revelation from God and uh, healing, which uh, just has never really stood up to uh, much scrutiny, 
the kicker, I think, is that he made a personal prediction the end of the world would occur in or before 1977. Since we're still here to talk about it, uh, I think we can conclude the teachings of William Branham or a jumble of bad theology, twisted scripture passages, and uh, personal pride. I think uh, people should steer clear. They're also quite legalistic. So when addressing someone who affirms his teachings, those are the three things to keep in mind. Okay, you claim serpent seed doctrine. Where in Genesis 3 does it suggest copulation was taking place? Or are you reading that into the text? If you say, well, uh, he was a prophet of God. Okay, did Jesus or did Jesus not come back in 1977 as he predicted? If not, then Deuteronomy 18 tells us what to do with him. If someone says, well, you know, uh, God functions in this way. Okay, understand the Trinity then. What does that actually mean? And yeah. how does his view co- uh, coerce with or conflict with that? That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. That's how we would share with them. So, again, Jim Jones, not a Christian. He was a socialist. Know what socialism is. Uh, Brandonism, know what he taught and point that out. Hold them to it. Here's a question from Yari uh, in reference, speaking of Isaiah, uh, to God removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, too. Yeah, yeah, and he says, not remembering them, doesn't say that, uh, reconcile with his omniscience. How do we reconcile what the text never says? Well, uh, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more is the uh, reference that he's referring to. It doesn't mean that God does a memory wipe. Um, It doesn't mean that somehow he tunes down his omniscience in order to do that. The idea of remembering is the idea of remembering with the idea of acting upon that remembrance. For instance, in a positive light, uh, the prophet Zechariah, his name literally means what? God remembers. God remembers. But it isn't like, oh, gee, I forgot about my people Israel. They're kind of, dis- oh, boy, that what an oversight. I got. No, or in it, Genesis 8 when it says that God remembered Noah and the people were on the ark. Exactly. It means to remember the, in, in the sense of I've made promises and I'm going to fulfill them. That's what it means. Uh, and so uh, if God were to remember our sins, it would mean that um, he would always act in complete harmony with his justice and hold them against us, and we would never be able to come into his presence. Uh, But the idea of God not remembering their lawless deeds uh, any longer as a part of the new covenant that he spoke spoke of in Jeremiah chapter uh, 33 and other places uh, means the idea that uh, because of what Jesus has done, uh, because he paid the price for our sins, our sins won't be remembered upon us by God. They were remembered when Jesus paid the price for our sins. And a good example of that in action is Genesis 50, where Joseph was uh, asked by his brothers not to uh, kill us, basically, based on what we did to you. And he said, hey, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. He didn't have any harm or ill will towards them. That doesn't mean he doesn't remember what they did, but he wasn't acting on it in the sense of vindication or retribution. And, you know, where this gets really practical is, you know, you run into people who say, well, I'll forgive them, but I'll never forget it. Um, I guess it just depends what you mean by forget it. Uh, If you mean that because of what happened, uh, it's going to be indelibly tattooed on your brain. Well, you know, that's kind of there. It's an experience that you've had. Uh, but when you say, I'll, I'll forgive, but I won't forget it, if what you're saying is, I'm always going to hold this card of bitterness because of what you've done for me, and if you get out of line, I am going to pull it out, and I'm going to beat you senseless with it uh, because you owe me now. 
that is not the kind of uh, forgetting that the Bible speaks of. Are we to forget? Uh, no, we're supposed to learn from our past. Uh, we don't have to ignore the fact that it happened. But are we to forgive in light of that past? That's a greater forgiveness because the forgiveness that God gave to us wasn't God just going, oh, wow, you know, I just have no idea that they ever even did that sort of thing. But we can know that even though God full well awares what we've done, Jesus paid the price personally for all of our sins when he died on the cross. He doesn't hold them against us. And that's where that beautiful promise, uh, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I love that because it doesn't say as far as the north from the south. Uh, if you look at our globe, uh, there's a north pole and there's a south pole. There's a, a place you can go and you can't go any farther north. Uh, there's a place you can go and you can't go any farther south. But uh, there's no such thing as an east pole or a west pole. If you start out around the equator and you head west, you'll be going forever. If you start out going east, same thing. Uh, in other words, what the scripture is saying is he removes our sin from us an infinite distance. That's what we need to remember. All right, and then to finish up, a question from Mac who wants to know, is someone held to a higher standard when they know God's truth? Uh, and then he mentions Ravi Zacharias. He was a teacher, but behind closed doors struggled as we all do. Uh, Mac, I guess we just have to be careful how we define and apply that term, a stronger standard, like will it be uh, more serious your sins? Like if you just, you know, accepted the Lord, then if you sinned in horrible ways, that won't keep you from heaven. But if you know the Lord and you sin in certain ways, then that can bring some sins into the unforgivable category. No, the passage comes from a point James was making in James chapter 3 regarding right. how our mouth affects more than we realize. It says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, in what sense? For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. And then goes on to illustrate it through a horse and a rudder of a ship. But the point being made is this. If I say, okay, so illustrating with the horse and the ship, if the horse doesn't play right and it gets out of line, that means it's going to be made into soup. No. no. Oh, if the ship doesn't steer right, that means it's going to be burned. No, it's saying that there's a function and a guidance, and when it comes to the hardest things for us to control, it's our mouths. As far as teachers who should be held to a higher standard because they know more, it's definitely going to involve immediate consequences, but not salvific ones. Yeah, Let's that, make sure we make the difference. And, and that's key. Uh, we definitely want to walk our talk and be an example, but uh, as far as our position in Christ, it's not based on us being great teachers. It's based on the great work that Jesus did when he died. It doesn't mean teachers have to be perfect either. We're very transparent about our need for a Savior. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.